Welcome, everybody, and thanks for joining us for our online service. And I'd just like to say a, a big thank you to all the fathers out there, and happy Father's Day. I hope you enjoy uh, your day and, and basking in the, the richness of your family and them showing their love to you. It's my privilege this morning to, to take a little bit of time and share some scripture with you. And we've been working uh, through a series over the past two weeks where we've been looking at how the church is described as a community of acceptance, a community that accepts your differences, a community of difference. Essentially, I've been using the analogy of a tossed salad with many ingredients that work together in unity, where each part is different than another, but, but when we put it all together, when we mix it all up and we put a little bit of olive oil, it makes this great tasting, unified, tossed salad. Now, I recognize that in this analogy, it does bring up some challenges. It brings up some challenges about what this radically accepting church could possibly look like. And so many of you, I'm sure, and no fault of your own, have probably jumped right to the concept of ethics. And and that you might want to argue that, uh, how is it that I could accept someone, invite them to the table, and accept them in our community if they're doing wrong, if they're doing things that are against what Scripture calls us to do, if they're living in such a way uh, that it affects the community. And actually, this is exactly my point. You see, you can't do that at this point in this teaching. You can't jump directly to ethics in order to determine acceptance. That's the baseline of what the New Testament is teaching us, is that you can't just jump directly to ethics in order to determine who is in and who is out. You see, the New Testament is establishing that before you can start to even create a biblical ethic, you must first welcome everyone to the table. You see, salvation is offered to all people. Christ died for all people. And so you have to have this baseline understanding, and that's what I've been talking about. We have to invite the unique ingredients that are needed in this tossed salad. But our tendency is to jump right to making the salad covered with ranch dressing. We want the salad to become like us, to think like us. And so today's sermon, I want to fix, help you to fix this natural disposition that we need these, these two main things in order to fix the natural disposition. Essentially, <laughs> I want to help you fix your natural disposition of judging based on sin and move you into understanding the two main ingredients that the church needs to live this acceptance calling. We need to shape ourselves into a biblical understanding of two things, grace and love. Scott McKnight, a theologian, says, A Christ-shaped church is a grace-empowered church that is full of different sorts of people who don't deserve to be there. 
Now, we know that. We know that cognitively. We may struggle to actually live that, but we know that cognitively, that, that a, a Christ-shaped church is a grace-empowered church that's full of different sorts of people who really just don't deserve to be there. We know that language. We understand it. However, I think that what skews it for us is our view of grace in love in the North American context, because it's become distorted, because it's not based on a biblical view of grace and love, it's based on our worldview of grace and love. And so essentially what's happened is, is our theology of grace is distorted. You see, in the scriptures, grace is a love-powered doctrine not a a reminder-powered doctrine. I'm going to say that again. I want you to listen really carefully to this. Grace in Scripture is not, it it is a love-powered doctrine. It's not a reminder-powered doctrine. You you see, grace is, is to some distorted into the sense of just simply meaning that God is nice and accepting and kind, that God lets us get away with certain behaviors that we shouldn't be doing because we're covered in the grace of the cross. But that is not what love-powered grace actually means. And to others, grace has become a reminder-based doctrine, a pride-based grace driven by emphasizing the negative side, uh, the negative undertones of the way that Scripture describes, describes grace. Listen to what some definitions of some great theologians, some famous people, uh, have taught. B.B. Warfield, he says this about grace. He says, grace is free, sovereign favor to ill-deserving people. Jerry Bridges, another theologian and good Bible teacher, says grace is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. Wayne Grudem, a modern theologian who's had a huge impact in the Reformed Church, he says this, God's grace means his unmerited favor. It means God's goodness to those who deserve only punishment. That, that is so normal in a lot of our shaping of our understanding of grace, that it's something that we don't deserve, that it, it's God's goodness toward those who only really truly deserve punishment. And I want you to notice something. Each of these definitions focus on our undeservingness. Essentially, how lucky we are that God wants anything to do with us, that grace is us being lucky that God is giving us another chance through Jesus Christ. That that's God's grace, our undeserving luckiness. But Paul describes grace very, very differently. To Paul, grace is a doctrine of love. Grace is gracious. God is gracious to us because he loves us. To Paul, God, grace is God's transforming power. To Paul, grace is not this this sort of undeserving luckiness. To Paul, grace is a transforming power that takes sinners and makes them saints. To Paul, grace emerges from God's love. It's God's love that drives grace, not God's wrath.
a woman by the name of Kathleen Norris. I think she gets grace right here. I think she nails Paul's understanding of grace perfectly. She says grace is Peter's denying Jesus and Saul persecuting the church, the Christians, but God could see the apostles that they would become. Now, let's take a a quick look at some passages on how Paul connects grace to his life. We'll turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 15, says this, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, so called Paul by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. And so then God reveals himself to Paul personally by his grace. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They recognized the grace that had been given to Paul personally by God. And Paul's mission to the Gentiles, Paul defines that mission as God's grace. In Romans chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith in his name's sake. And Paul goes on to explain that each of our gifts actually, are also a product of God's grace. In Romans chapter 12, verse 6, he says, we have different gifts according to the grace that is given each of us. So our gifts are according to the grace that is given each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance to your faith, and so on. And Paul goes on to teach more about how these grace-given gifts function in the life of the church. And then Paul explains that his entire life has has been lived through the grace of God. It's been given to him by God's grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, he reflects on this. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was was not without effect. Paul says, no, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You see, grace to Paul doesn't sound like luck-based grace, like reminder-based grace. He's not, to Paul, grace is not being reminded of how lucky he is that God wants to be near him. To Paul, grace is, is transformative grace driven by love. Paul uses the noun charis 95 times. That's the Greek word that is used to represent grace. He uses it 95 times in his letters alone. And the word charismata, or charismatic, what we translate it into, 16 times. Essentially, over 125 times in Paul's letters alone, he talks about this transforming grace that's driven by love. 
And so this whole love concept, Paul connects to grace. He actually believes that love is what drives the grace. And so Paul uses the, word, the Greek word agape, which is an unconditional love. There's different levels of love. This is the highest level of love possible. He uses agape love connected with the word grace 71 times. And he uses the verb agapeo, uh, which is the active version of it, 28 times. You see, Paul feels that these two words, love and grace, were central to the understanding of the Christian church and how the life of a Christian should function within the church. He saw grace empowered by love. So in order to understand grace, folks, we must know how the Bible first defines love. Now often, when you or I are trying to find the definition of something, we will go to a resource such as the Webster Dictionary. And here's how the Webster Dictionary defines the word love in the English language. It says that love is an intense feeling of deep affection. I'm going to give you a really quick Bible lesson. It's a really simple one, but I really want you to hear what I'm saying. Do not go to the Webster Dictionary to define a biblical concept. You see, the Webster Dictionary is not speaking from a biblical perspective. The Webster Dictionary defines a word how we use it in the English language. And if you define the word love, how we use it in an English language, you would define it as an intense feeling of affection. But the only way to truly understand the word love from a biblical perspective is to watch how God loves throughout the narrative of the Bible. You see, we're going to let the Bible, God himself, show us what love actually is. Now, we need to walk through Scripture, and we need to watch how God loves Israel. We need to watch how God goes about loving his son. We need to observe how God loves his church and how God loves the entire world. You see, God shows us what love is, and the, the, the only way to understand what God means by love, it will help us get grace right. You see, if we understand what God means by love, it'll help us get grace right. So love in Scripture is very important to understand outside of the emotional experience that our Webster Dictionary would explain. Because Paul constantly explains that love is the centerpiece of the Christian life. And so we've got to get our definition of love right so we can get our definition of grace right. And in the salad bowl... It's essentially Paul saying you need to understand love in order for tomatoes and olives to be able to love each other, to be able to connect, because apparently uh, tomatoes and olives don't actually go together well, but yet they both exist in a tossed salad. They make no sense, but through love, they will begin to make sense. Listen to these verses, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. 
The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Galatians chapter 5, verse 14 says this, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on in Galatians 5, chapter, verse, chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, he says, what's the first fruit of the Spirit? It's love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 14, Paul says this very simple but profound statement. Do everything in love. In Colossians 3, verse 14, he says, and over all these virtues, so he rhymes off all of these different characteristics or ethics that the church needs to be, like kind and and grateful and all of these different things. But after that, he says, and over all of these virtues, this list of virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In other words, without putting on love, those virtues are virtually useless. It's the love that binds them all together in perfect unity. Love is the only thing that counts to Paul. And it counts more than making sure you're doing things right. That's what what he said when it's more important than circumcision. That love is what fulfills all of the law. That you can summarize all of these these proper ethical ways of living faith simply by loving. And you'll notice it doesn't say to love God. It actually says to love others. In other words, you can't build a proper ethic until you build a proper understanding of love. And so we can't jump to ethics yet. We have to have an understanding of the way God loves. You see, there are 613 right ways to do things in Scripture. We call them commandments. 613 right ways. This is the way God wants us to live. 613 things. And Paul says that all of it has to be understood through the lens of love. That when you love someone, you will be living these 613 things. But you see, Western culture sees love the way the Webster Dictionary describes it as a chemical reaction, a rush of dopamine, which is the chemical that works within the pleasure center of the brain. That's probably why we call in our culture love chemistry, that I have chemistry with this person. I'm connected to them. We have a lot of things in common. And so between our chemistry and our in commonness, so to speak, I can fall in love. But this is not how the Bible describes love at all. And so I want to help you very quickly today to describe the four elements that I believe Scripture gives us about love. And the first is the baseline to understanding when Scripture is talking about love. The first is that love is a covenant commitment. You see, in Scripture, the concept of covenant begins with a guy named Abraham. And God makes a rugged commitment to Abraham. 
This commitment continues in Scripture throughout the narrative to be expressed to Moses, to be expressed to David, to Jeremiah, and then the completion in the New Testament through Jesus, and then finally in the new heaven and the new earth. We see this covenantal love, this covenantal commitment of love that's being promised by God. Now, the verb covenant means an obligation and commitment. So love in Scripture, is an obligation and a commitment. In Scripture, love begins with a sort of institutional commitment to one another. Stanley Harawas, a a brilliant theologian from Duke University, says this really profound and simple statement. He says, no two people are actually compatible. No two people are compatible. There's no app There's nothing that you can log into that will do some kind of research and study who you would best be compatible with. He says, actually, no two people are compatible. We're all uniquely different. And so essentially, the essence of love in the Bible is actually not to look for compatibility, but to be committed to someone, to make a distinct decision of covenantal commitment. But there's more than just commitment to love. There are actually three prepositions in the Bible that teach us about love. And they make up points two to four uh, in our understanding of love. Here they are. With, for, and unto. Or, if you don't like the biblical language, presence, advocacy, and direction. Those are actually the three propositions, prepositions sorry, in the Bible that teach us about love. So the second point is, is that love is a commitment to presence. So God commits in covenant to us, but in that commitment, he is committing to be present, to be willing to be with somebody. You see, God's covenant with Israel is a covenant of presence. The central promise of the Old Testament is this in Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, verse 7, God says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God. So this is what he's promising, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I'll be your God you'll be my people. And that's actually Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 28. It says, then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. God was with Israel in a pillar of cloud, a tabernacle, in a king, and ultimately in the Messiah, Jesus, and then through his spirit. Love cannot exist, folks, without presence. Now, third point is love is a commitment to advocacy. You see, the signature impact of God's presence with Israel is foreness, is advocacy. God is for them. When someone is willing to be with you, you know that they are in your 
corner. You know that they have your back. God is essentially saying that to the Israelites and to all of us through Scripture, that when you're with me, when I'm in your presence, I've got your back. And we see this throughout the biblical narrative. In 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. God's yes to us all is the radical presence that he offers us. His yes to all are the results of that radical presence. And the fourth point is is that love is a commitment. So see, we keep going back to the covenantal commitment, that love is a commitment with direction. Now, this is what begins to solve our problem of us keeping to jumping into ethics. Unto, in Scripture, means that God's love for us is unto. It's transformative in nature. God's love for us, his commitment and presence that communicates that he is for us, transforms us because of the charismatic presence of God's glory, love, and holiness in our lives. When you're around someone enough, they begin to rub off on you. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever heard the saying of you become who you hang out with? When God is present with you, or when others who are present with God are present with you, they begin to rub off on you. You start to become like those you are present with. Presence communicates advocacy, which communicates direction. God's presence is the way that we become like him. God loves us in order to make us like Christ. Now, in our world, many are told that they are loved, but they never actually experience presence. You see, a lack of presence communicates that you are not really for someone. I could say to you that I love you, but if I'm never there for you, Am I really showing you my love? But you see, God promises to always be there for us, to always be saying yes to us. Love in the Bible is defined by commitment, by witness, by witness, sorry, by commitment, by witness, by forness and untoness. That's the biblical language. Love shapes grace. So God's grace is God's love to commit himself to to us, to be with us in Christ and to be for us in the cross and resurrection and his second coming in Christ. In such a way that, that when we spend time in the presence of Christ, we're caught up in becoming like Christ. God is the transforming power. Grace, sorry, is the transforming power of God at work in our world. When you experience the loving presence, the commitment, and the yes of Jesus, you experience the grace that Paul talks about that's transforming in nature. 
So in order to become a grace-based church, we must first understand love. It's the love that transforms, not information. So this is what I mean by that. Often in the church, we think that it's not loving if I neglect to tell somebody about their sin. In other words, I'm giving them tough love because I'm going to tell them that they're a sinner and what's wrong with them, and I'm going to point them to get on track with Jesus. The thing is, is that you're misunderstanding how the Bible's describing God's love and grace. It's love that transforms, not the information of your brokenness. In other words, when we jump right to the, but what about that person's lifestyle or that person's behavior? I just can't accept this. We're missing the point of what Scripture is teaching us about the essence of the church. So understand that I'm teaching you about the essence of the church before we even build our ethics. The church is called to be loving, to invite everyone to the table so that they can experience the love-driven grace of God, the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. And it is not the people telling others that they need to be changed. It's the grace that they experience through Christ that creates the transformation through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Folks, the Holy Spirit does the convicting and does the transforming, not the judging of the people. In John 13, verse 35, listen to what he says. He says, my children... I give you a new command. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Notice he didn't say, by you pointing out other people's sins, they will know that you are my disciples because of your rightness. No, love shows God's rightness. Love one another and people see Jesus in you. You see, it confuses me why we jump directly to ethics before we even understand the basic nature of how God loves us. We will certainly build ethics because God calls us to holiness and righteousness, but it's all through him, and it's all done by him. And so the church is called to live in the likeness of Christ, which is love and transforming grace. Change happens, not because you tell someone that they need to change. That's actually scientifically proven. That telling someone they need to change doesn't catalyst change. Change happens when someone is influenced by someone else's presence. So the church is called to love. Because love is what shows the presence of God to others. As we transition in our online service, and we're going to go to another song, As we sing this song, I want you to reflect on these two questions. Who are you called to be present 
with? Who are you called to be truly, lovingly committed and present with? And who in your life is God wanting you to love that often seems unlovable? Let's sing. For I spoke word, you singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so
of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. And I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it, still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. God's love truly is reckless, truly is radical. And today, what my prayer for you is, is that you would experience the love and the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you give us and the grace that we receive. And I pray, Lord, that that love and that grace would begin to shape our hearts in the midst of the tossed salad bowl. That we would start with the baseline of everyone is welcome and that everyone is to be loved and that it is your grace that transforms. It is your presence with us that turns us into the likeness of your son. And so, Lord, I pray that we would press into life in your presence so that your presence can make us more and more like you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and for your love. And may the world know us by that loving grace that we offer one another. In Jesus' name, amen.